This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Where we pick up with the reading is in the book of Deuteronomy, and this is some 40 years after that famous deliverance from Egypt when they crossed the Red Sea and the ten plagues and all of that. Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, and in these verses specifically, Moses is giving uh, an historical retrospective. He's looking back with the people, and he's rehearsing. He really does that in Deuteronomy in three sermons. We're going to read from the first sermon. But again, they're historical retrospectives that, that in, in, there's more than this, but at the least, and to our purposes today, Moses is encouraging the people concerning God's care and God's direction, not just in the past, but in the present and in the future. So let's read the text. We read it two weeks ago. Deuteronomy 2, here they are about ready to take the promised land. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me, and for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people you're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them. Don't make war with them. For I will not give you any of their land. I'm not blessing you to hurt anybody else. I've got my own deal with them. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money. It won't make you sick. It won't hurt you. You can read their books. You may purchase food with money that you may eat. You shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. And regarding the 40 years you've been traveling, I just want you to remember this. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows your going, your goings, your coming and goings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You've lacked nothing. I love verse 3. You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough, not too long, not too short, just right. Now it's time to turn northward in the direction generally you've always been heading, but now catalyzed and specifically. This is the third week of our vision-clarifying series that we've called Turn You Northward. Like every organization, it is imperative for a church's health that periodically we clarify and renew our commitment to our reason for being, our mission, our vision. Like every church, our ultimate reason, if we look for an ultimate reason in the most general sense, our ultimate reason is the great commission of Jesus, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Our ultimate reason is the same as Christ United Methodist, and Gateway Nazarene, and Clearview Baptist, and Holy Family Catholic. Our reason is to proclaim the good news. And... <clears throat> Like every local church, like every individual congregation, they and we 
have to answer a couple of tandem questions that periodically we rotate back around through, reorient ourselves to, recalibrate, reestablish. And those two tandem questions are, first, if our ultimate reason is to proclaim the good news, we must continually, periodically, with heightened attention, circle back around to, number one, what is the good news? And secondly, in keeping with that, how do we share it? If we're called to proclaim the good news, then you should be asking individually, what is the good news I'm proclaiming? And how do we best proclaim that? These questions are of foremost importance. And I think they merit the continual devotion not only of organizations, religious organizations, churches, but I think they merit the continual devotion of people. Because you have a world, you have family, you have neighbors that you are responsible to. And you've, you've got to ask yourself continually, do I possess good news? Am I a harbinger? Do I believe in good news? And if I do believe indeed in the good news of God's love, how do I share it with those that I love the most? And I can tell you that our pastors here at Grace Point, not only our pastors, but our elders on a weekly basis, spend hours caring for you, looking over you, loving you, thinking not only theoretically but practically how best to minister to you. And I can tell you that our pastors and elders are continually giving themselves to this paramount process of asking ourselves, what is the gospel and how do we proclaim it? This series, Turn You Northward, um, is not alone in the history of Grace Point. There have been many other series like this. Uh, three different occasions we have passed through moments where we've taken 10 or 12 weeks in the beginning, the middle, and a few years ago we asked the question, who is Grace Point? And we walked week after week through that question, who is Grace Point? And so this series is not new in, uh, to that extent, but series like this through the years, effort, to bring us back again to our mission that we might fulfill our mission more effectively. Now, in this particular series, we're asking three cardinal questions. And the first question we addressed two weeks ago is wherein lies authority? Wherein lies authority by which we direct our lives, by which we make decisions, by which we think, and then by which we act out of those decisions? The second question, cardinal question that we've been asking, we asked last week, and that is, what is the nature of humanity? Borrowing the famous phrase from Leo Tolstoy, uh, we ask a third question out of those two, and that's the question for this week, how then shall we live? So wherein lies authority by which we direct our life? What is the nature of humanity? Who are we? What are these humans that we set beside, what is this frame that we live in, and thirdly today, how then shall we live? The first question in the context of a local church brings clarity, specifically here, that first question wherein lies authority brings clarity to how we at Grace Point principally decide matters of doctrine and teaching. Anna Register, 28, 29-year-old young lady who is a super super, super employee, director of children's ministry, and I think moving quickly in her vocational career to becoming a pastor. Anna Register does not decide what we teach the children at this church, nor does our 
pastor of education, Jennifer Smith, exclusively decide what we teach the children at this church. But sitting in community with you and representing you, elders and pastors collaborate together. And Anna's a part of that and Jennifer's a part of that. But ultimately, there are pastors and there are elders who pour over these principal decisions of doctrine and teaching. And how we together answer that question, wherein lies authority, um, to the extent that we answer that and how we answer that dictates in great part how we do build doctrine and teaching by which we teach not only adults but our children. The second question in the context of the local church, what is the nature of humanity, brings clarity to our view of ourselves. Not only does it bring clarity to the view that we have of ourselves, but it brings clarity to the view that we have of our fellow human beings. And when we answer those questions, wherein lies authority, how do we decide how to live? How do we decide how to think? Who are these people sitting around us and who are we ourselves? Immediately those two questions lead into that third question, for the third question is a direct response to those answers, and that question is, how then? And you hear in the then, the, the point, how then? In response to our view of authority, in response to how we look at one another, how then? In response to what elders and pastors decide is correct teaching to teach children four years old about Jesus, how then does Anna register? How then do you Sunday school teachers? On the grounds of our view of authority, on the grounds of our view of humanity, in response to those things and in accordance with these answers, perhaps the most important question a church has to answer is how then shall we live? In light of our views on authority and humanity, what does God expect of us? What are the consequent or the subsequent incarnations? And that's the word Christians like, incarnations. That just means made flesh. You take the esoteric and the abstract, and as my uh, mentor, Brother Hardwick, used to say, you concretize it. I don't know if that's actually a word, but he used it, and I knew what he meant. You make it concrete. You solidify it in practicum. What are the consequent incarnations of our views? of humanity and authority? What are the practical outplays of our beliefs? This third question necessarily moves us beyond the theoretical, abstract world of philosophies and theologies that a lot of you don't even care too much about. There are personalities that are bent toward that kind of conversation and personalities that aren't. Some of you, if you are in proximity to people who are deeply philosophical, theological, and abstract, you can even be made to feel at times like you're less than, but you're not. There are some people who are completely activist in their nature, and they spend little time theorizing. There are others of us that love the theory and the philosophy of it all. But the third question necessarily moves all of us, the activist and the theorist. It moves us beyond the abstract world of philosophies and theologies into the world of real life. And that is at the heart. I just want to say this about the Christian faith. That's at the heart of our faith. Our beloved brother James said, faith without works is dead. Theories and philosophies that do not embody themselves well in flesh and blood are irrelevant 
Not only did James offer us that idea that faith without works is no faith. That's really what he meant. Faith without works is no faith. It doesn't even deserve the name faith. But in the first chapter, he said, pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit fatherless children and widows in their affliction. James said there is pure and undefiled religion before God, and if there is pure and undefiled, then there must be defiled religion. And by the tenor of the rest of his book, I would say that James thought defiled religion is a bunch of people sitting around on Sunday morning theorizing about ideas that they never actually live. So the third question moves us out of the theoretical into the heart of our faith, and we believe that's exactly what God did in the person called Jesus of Nazareth. You talk about incarnation, that's where the idea of incarnation really began to come clear to us. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God came, fully divine, fully human, God lived a human life. And what God was doing in the incarnation was he was fleshing out disembodied concepts and ideas. In the beginning was the word. Certainly the idea preceded the action, and any action worth its salt is born out of good ideas. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is the incarnation, John 1, and the Word was made flesh. And any word that cannot be made flesh, and cannot be made flesh well and effectively, that word comes into eternal question. Christianity is a religion, those of us who follow Christ, we resonate with Colossians 1.15. He, the writer said, Jesus, listen to this, is the image of the invisible God. We resonate with this idea of incarnation that God, as I often say, threw a blanket over the invisible man and the contours of the divine were now made seeable in Jesus he was, Colossians 1.15 said, the image of the invisible God. I like Hebrews 1.3. He, Jesus, listen to this, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. Did you hear that? Jesus was the exact imprint. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very being. That means when God steps and lifts his foot the imprint is the shape of Jesus' life. And we resonate with Jesus himself. This idea of how then shall we live, the incarnation was all about it. John 14 and 9, wherein lies authority, authority is in God. Who are we? We are those who are indwelt by God. How then shall we live? Jesus said, you shall live like me, for whoever has seen me has seen the ultimate authority. Whoever has seen me has seen God. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so to rehearse, you want the essence of Christianity? Here it is. In terms of these three questions, at least the first two, we believe authority is in God. And we spent weeks talking about how God has vested that in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But suffice it to say, we believe authority is in God and the message of Jesus is that God is in us. Now, if authority is in God and God is in us, then wherein lies authority? Not haughtily do we say authority lies within us, any more haughtily than we say that God lies within us. But the Christian message is that authority is in God, and the message of Jesus is that God is in us. Christianity teaches 
And you live this out practically, though you may be uncomfortable saying it, you live this de facto. Christianity teaches that when you seek authority, in seeking authoritative thought or wisdom on a matter, whatever that matter is in your life, in seeking authoritative thought or wisdom on a matter, we are not inquiring of an external source. We are inquiring of an internal source because God is in us. So when we are seeking wisdom and Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, that voice is not one that falls from heaven unless you remember Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within you. Then indeed it does fall from the very depths of your own soul. For that voice is inside of you, for Jesus is inside of you. Now, to the extent that we actually realize how much is inside of us and we actualize God who dwells inside of us, Jesus said, my father and I will make our abode in you, you remember Jesus said to the disciples on the night before his crucifixion, he said, you know the way. And they looked at him and said, no, we don't. Matter of fact, it was Thomas who said, no, we don't. Jesus didn't respond by saying, oh, sorry, <laughs> I stand corrected. You really don't. No, Jesus stuck with it and said, you do. You just don't know you do. He turned right around and said, and you have seen the Father. And Philip, another disciple, looked at him and said, no, we haven't. Jesus didn't respond, well, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Jesus said, yes, you have. You just didn't know it when it happened. Further into the chapter, Jesus said, you know the spirit of truth. And the disciples looked at him in unison and said, no, we don't. We've never seen him. Jesus said, you've seen him. He has been with you and he shall be in you. You see, Jesus was speaking to an internal knowledge they had that they didn't even lay claim to. Not only did they not lay claim to it, they didn't actualize it and live out the fullness thereof, but Jesus said, you've got it, it's in you. That's something that biblically, theoretically, even precedes the time of Jesus because in Paul's case that he makes in Romans 1 and 2, Paul's talking to the Jewish people who had the law from Sinai, and he said, I want to tell you something. What happened at Sinai with Moses and the whole writing on stone was actually unnecessary if you would have actualized what you have inside of you. And the Jewish people were like, well, we didn't know the law before Moses went up on Sinai. Paul said, not only did you know the law, but hold your breath baitedly now. Jesus said, or rather Paul said, so did the Gentiles. Paul said, not only did you know but before Abraham, when everybody was a Gentile, he said the law was known, not because it was written on tablets of stone, but because it was written in the human heart, encoded into the fabric of human beings created in the image of God. And the people looked at Paul in defense and said, no, 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 we didn't know the law before Sinai. Paul said, yes, you did. You just didn't know you did. So revelation doesn't come externally revelation comes through uncovering the image of God that is deep inside of you that's what Christianity teaches from Paul to Jesus and Jesus concluded that day by saying there's coming a day he looked at his disciples in the 14th chapter the 20th verse he said there's coming a day when you will know that I'm in my father I love what he said in this place, he didn't say there's coming a day when I'll be in my father and the father in me and I in you he didn't say that. He said, there's coming a day when you'll know. The intimation is you'll know what's always been true. There's coming a day when you will know that I'm in my Father. You hear that? Jesus didn't say, there's coming a day when I will be in the Father. No, he said, there's coming a day when you'll know that I'm in my Father 
There's coming a day when you'll know that you are in me, the union of God and man. And Jesus said there's coming a day when you will know, emphasis on know, that I am in you. Christianity's teaching of an internal God, we are not that God, but we are a spark, a reflection, a part of, and we are indwelt by the image of God. And Christianity's teaching of an internal God logically yields its teaching of an internal authority. If you teach an internal God, then you teach an internal authority if you indeed believe that that God is authority. We looked at one scripture that I want to rehearse, 1 John 2, 24 through 27, and I want you to hear it now in context. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life that he promised us. I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you, so you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. John himself is teaching here. John himself is not devaluing teachers. John simply holds that human teachers corroborate, help facilitate and nurture what has primarily already been taught to you, if you will but know it. But you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true, for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what he teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Now, practically, the question today is, what does that look like? How then shall we live? What do elders and pastors do here? What do you do as a member of the body of Christ as we're deciding per Jessica's question, how do we teach our children? How do we baptize? Do we call it a baby dedication or a baby baptism? These are matters of faith. How do we view salvation? What do we teach our children about following Christ? In a couple of weeks, they'll be taking first communion. Where does communion fit in? How do the sacraments play into the Christian's life? Practically, the pragmatic question, how then shall we live, that's offered in response to our view of authority and our view of humanity, it finds a consummate expression. And I want you to follow me for a moment. This question, how then shall we live, finds a consummate expression in a story from the pages of Holy Scripture. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts tells the story of one of the most important and formative moments, not only in early church history, and I want to say this, the book of Acts tells a consummate story that addresses this question that not only is one of the most important formative moments in church history, but in human history. And before we read that story together, I want to utilize our board here to draw a picture of the Christian churches of idea, idea of authority and how it's processed. We've talked about this a little bit, but I wanna go over this and just put this here and then we'll play with it in relation to scripture. But if the question is, wherein lies authority? You got that, Clint, is that gonna work out? I'll, I'll turn it if it needs to. Wherein lies authority? We settled very easily, Catholic, Protestant, traditional, progressive, conservative, liberal, we all agree that authority lies in God. 
The thing that makes us Christian is that we believe that Jesus, that God did something very special coming to the earth, fully divine in the person of Jesus, and that Jesus was the express image of God, and so Jesus carried the authority of God. Thus, even John's gospel makes him the judge of all the earth. Jesus tells his disciples in the 16th chapter, um, verses 12 through 14, if you want to make note of this, Jesus tells his disciples, the Father has vested authority in me, but I'm going away, and the Father's going to send another comforter. And when that, holy, when that comforter comes, listen to this. Jesus said he is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you everything. So authority, Jesus now vests in the Holy Spirit, whom he says will teach you everything. In the 16th chapter, the disciples try to argue Jesus out of going away. They tell him, we don't want another advocate. We want you. Jesus says, I won't leave you orphans. I'll come to you, Father and Son, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, as a matter of fact, I have many things to tell you now, but you can't bear them. Watch this. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he, can you say it with me? He will lead and guide you into what? All truth. I want to say something interesting about Jesus we learn of Jesus through the Gospels, but one of the primary things that we learn of Jesus through the Gospels is that we will learn more fully of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again. A lot of people think the way you learn about Jesus is to read the four Gospels. Well, if you read the four Gospels, Jesus himself actually says, what the four Gospels teach you about me pales in comparison to what something else is going to teach you about me. You want to know what the gospel says? Jesus said, I have many things, many things. I hadn't even scratched the surface with you guys. But you can't bear it now. So you don't find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Jesus said, one of these days, a fifth gospel is going to be written, and that one's going to... No. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's coming, and he's going to glorify me, and he's going to teach you everything about me. So if you have the erroneous idea that if you want to learn about Jesus, just read the Gospels and you'll know everything you need to know, listen to Jesus himself in the Gospels. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll teach you everything about me. He will lead and guide you into all truth. So now we have this idea that the living, indwelling presence of God through the Holy Spirit is where authority lies. The church's perspective on this has been that there are several ma major arteries by which the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Those arteries, not necessarily in any order, are tradition, scripture. For many years, we had a triad of these three. One of my fathers in the Wesleyan tradition came along and Wesley, or in the holiness tradition, Charles and John Wesley brothers, they said the triad, as Anglicans, Orthodox people, they said the triad should be expanded to include experience. Well, that makes sense because Wesleyan, holiness, Pentecostal people emphasize this direct encounter with the Holy Spirit. So we have, for many, many years, tradition, scripture, and reason. When Wesley said experience, the church did not say, well, that's a new one. The church said, absolutely, experience has probably been a subset of reason or maybe even a subset of tradition. But there are times in church history when a subcategory becomes so large, it, it kind of merits its own. And this is the world that I come from. Um, recently in the 20th century, the church, I think, has added another, creation. 
the handiwork of God reveals God. In Romans 1, when Paul was talking about the law that's inherent in us, he said, not only do we know it internally, but we know it through the things which are made. Now, creation really isn't a new one. It's a subset of experience, but the subcategory has developed enough interest and emphasis that now we see these five. Now, these are mediums or vessels through which God speaks. One thing that we also believe is that these are utilized not in solitary confinement or in isolation, but these are best utilized in the context of community. I don't like reading the creeds, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I like reading the creeds, we believe. There is a comfort in the we-ness of the creeds, if I could use a word that relates to the end of the elbow, but spell it differently, in the us-ness of the creeds. Together you are the body of Christ. Nobody represents Jesus by themselves, but together you're the body of Christ. That's why Paul to the Corinthians said, let everybody speak for God and prophesy, but let the others judge. I do not believe, and I think it's the height of presumption and arrogance, to separate myself into an island and to think that I can mediate the voice of God to myself through these things outside of the context of other brothers and sisters who also, together we are the body of Christ, we believe, and we prophesy and we judge. God speaks through us. So these things are best meted out in the context of community. Now the question that comes is a big one, and this is what the scripture really addresses. Is one of these, now here, so far, so far, Baptist, Methodist, Nazarene, Church of Christ, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Yea, verily, amen, stop right there, we're all on the same page. But the question that begs out of all of this is one of these given the final say? Do one of these have ultimate say over the others? The Protestant Reformation that most of us come out of, our father, Luther, and others, said, indeed, one of these is premier. Now, you remember Luther's word, do you remember, was sola scriptura, which, by the way, Luther did not mean, because sola, what's that mean? Only. Quickly, the followers of Luther said, that's an overreaction and an overstatement. Luther really didn't teach sola scriptura. In other words, he didn't teach that only one of these mediums could God legitimately speak through. No, Luther believed in tradition, reason, experience, and creation. Luther really didn't mean sola scriptura. He meant, using Latin, prima scriptura. What he was saying was, yes to all of these, but one of them is premium, premier, or in Latin, prima. And everybody knows, as a Protestant, which one of these is the trumper, right? This is the rook card. Now, in the Catholic tradition, there are those that lean heavily on this, but I think if you pressed any Catholic theologian, they would say it's a tandem of these two. Phyllis, in her book, Age of the Spirit, commented as an Episcopal on Pentecostals, and I, I talked to her about it, and it wasn't a major correction, but she seemed to be saying that Pentecostals, Assembly of God, Church of God, Charismatics, the world that I come from, and even the Wesleyans, believe this one 
was the trumper of all things. And, and that's, that's really not, that's not my experience, and I don't think that is traditional Pentecostalism or Wesleyanism. We believed in experience. Oh, you better believe we believed in experience. But we didn't believe it was the trump. We believed that any experience we had would always fall in line with Scripture, which was the ultimate voice. We were good Protestants and evangelicals to that end. This question, which of these is prima, I think may be an unnecessary and unfortunate question. And I think the church is coming to that conclusion. And I think the church has actually been operating practically all along as though that's an unnecessary question. I think it's not only unnecessary, I think it's unfortunate. You see, to not give one of these final say is to keep ultimate authority where it belongs, and that's with God. To not give one of these ultimate authority keeps authority where it belongs, and that is ultimately, see, we've never really taught that these are authoritative. This is authoritative. These are mediums of the authoritative voice. I think when we keep from making one of these prima or sola, I think it keeps popes and preachers and brains and science and books and Bibles and sunsets from morphing into idols. I think in keeping them all together as opposed to one above the other, it keeps them from morphing into idols at which point they lose their healthy role as vessels of God's disclosure through which God speaks. To the text, to make my point, uh, this text is from the book of Acts and the early church. You guys will be looking at it on screen. I just feel more holy if I'm looking at it with my Bible in my hand, so let me look at it. And that's Acts, the 10th chapter. And I want to read through this quickly now. This is the early church, and all of you, unless there's a Jewish person here, all of you are in the church and receive the gospel because of this text. So it's a really important text for us. And this text addresses the question of which of those five is prima or premier. All right, here we go. Acts 10. In Caesarea, you guys look at the text. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God. All right, hold on just a second. We got a devout person who just, he was doing a Bible study. No. He went to his denomination's church council. No. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision. What was happening in his life? What? Experience. He had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, now the angel's talking. What is that? Experience. The angel stared at him and said to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? 
He answered, your prayers and your alms have, as, have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, on the other end, Peter, the guy that he was going to find, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Which of the five is happening in the life of Peter now? He fell into a trance. Say it. Experience. Fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice. The voice. Who is the voice? How is the voice being communicated? Through an experience. He heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. What is that? That's authoritative, isn't it? Get up, kill, and eat. And Peter said, anybody remember what Peter said? Why did Peter say no? Tradition and the way he had read, which to him made perfect reasonable sense. Peter said, no, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. Profane, where does he get the idea of unclean or profane animals? Tradition and scripture are always married because tradition is simply the continual and accumulated interpretation of scripture. The voice said to him, I'm glad God doesn't give up. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. You know why? Because when this process starts happening in your life, it's not the easiest thing. And three times the thing happened, and then the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen. All right, listen. Every one of these has to be interpreted. Anybody who doesn't admit to the human process of interpretation is missing the reality. While Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision. You know what? You have to make something of this. You have to make something of this. You have to make something of each of these. He had an experience, and he was an honorable man who said this experience is contradicting these other mediums, and I don't know what to make of it. Suddenly, the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, look at it, the Spirit said to him, while Peter was interpreting and thinking about the experience, the Spirit spoke to him through another experience. His Bible's not open yet. 
but his Bible's open in his heart, and so is his tradition. And the good thing about God is he doesn't ask you to check your brain in at the door when you start this process with him. And you don't have to close your eyes to the reality that these Gentile people have babies just like you do. And they love their babies and cry at their funerals just like you do. Creation declares some things. They were asking for Simon's house. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up. What is that? Get up. Authority. Get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them. And I, I want to tell you this. He invited them in, gave them lodging, and later we found he ate with them. Did you know to eat with them defied tradition? which was their interpretation of Scripture. The next day he got up, went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him, and falling at his feet, worshipped him. That's an experience between the two, a worship experience between the two, Peter interpreted that experience. Cornelius was deeply moved. Peter said, get up, stand up, I'm just a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. God had said, don't be hesitant. Peter had to be hesitant. And he said to them, you yourselves know that it is unlawful. You think he's talking about Mediterranean law? What law is he talking about? What law is he talking about? Mosaic law, God's law. Peter said, you yourselves know that it is unlawful, unbiblical for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me it could happen anywhere. But God, but This is wrong, 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 but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. They had been doing that for 1,400 years, and I dare you to read the same text in Leviticus, you'd do the same thing. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now my, may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this very hour, at three o'clock I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Peter's hearing this. Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. The angels that came to Jacob went to this Gentile. He's hearing the story of another man's experience. Now, you may not believe it, but you got to hear it. 
Peter said, I want to hear your testimony. And Cornelius said, I was praying as a Gentile, and an angel stood before me. And he said, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. Peter had received the Holy Spirit days, weeks before this. And I want you to notice the Holy Spirit that leads and guides into truth did not download all the truth into Peter at that moment. The baptism of God's Holy Spirit in your life, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, Buster doesn't make it all come together for you in the moment. Peter is being led by the Holy Spirit who had been in him all along. He said, send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who's called Peter. He told me your name. He's staying in the home of Simon a Tanner by the sea. Therefore, I've sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to speak to them and said, I truly understand. I'm interpreting now. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears in every nation, 1,400 years are melting now. In every nation, anyone who fears him. You want to do well with Scripture? Don't memorize this story. Find yourself in this story. That's when Scripture comes alive. This is not an event that has happened to others one time. This is an unfolding reality in the life of the church. That's the beauty of Scripture. God accepts people in every nation who fear him and do what is right and acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus. He is Lord of all. That message, if anybody thinks this is relativism, you're missing the point. There's not relativism here. It's all about how God does what God does. But the gospel is the gospel. He preached Jesus as Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced. Now watch. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed Jesus. Jesus, that's authority, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. Woo, the mystery of the Trinity. If you figure that out, let me know, and I'll have you do the Bible study next. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God. We've always thought there were just select people, just to us who were chosen by God as witnesses. We didn't know we were first. We thought we were only. Ah, oh, the difference between first and only. It's an important one in religious conversation. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets, woohoo! you're not throwing it out. All the prophets 
testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Please give me a few minutes here. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on people that the Holy Spirit wasn't supposed to fall on. While Peter was still speaking, this is an interesting moment because the Holy Spirit falls before baptism. It's the only place. Why does it fall before baptism? Because baptism is something you need another believer for. Peter preached himself, repent and be baptized and you'll get the Holy Spirit. That's the way it happens. But Peter wasn't ready to baptize them. Why? Because he thought scripture said they couldn't be baptized and God said, I'm going to break the order and I'm going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter said, if he can baptize them, can't I? If he can accept them, can't I? The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church has always been God baptizing people that the church won't and the church following begrudgingly along slowly giving grace to those that God does. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit knew that Peter wasn't going to baptize them, fell upon all who heard the word, and the circumcised believers, oh, I don't like that word, the circumcised Christians, denominations had already started. We weren't just believers, but from the get-go, we were circumcised believers, Jewish believers. And we began the process of unnecessary adjectives. But the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded. Do you know why they were astounded? Because this said not so. No, it didn't. They thought it did. The circumcised believers, oh God, deliver us from adjectives, who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, even. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They heard them speaking in tongues. Pentecostals have made way too much out of speaking in tongues. The reason tongues was needed in Acts 10 was because no Jewish person, no Jewish Christian would have believed that they received the Holy Spirit unless they heard them do exactly what they had done in Acts 2. Acts 2, the Jews spoke in tongues and now the Gentiles did. The experience was necessary. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing? Because I sure have. Until I saw him baptized with spirit, I was. And Peter looked at the water and said, can anyone withhold, oh God, the water that we have withheld from people, people, the water from the well that never runs dry. You said, no, 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 this is a historical story. No, this is the story of the Christian church. Can we is the continual question of the Christian communion withhold water from these people. Can we withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Corroborating experience. They didn't just receive the Holy Spirit. They received it just as we. The tongue-speaking experience was an experience that corroborated. 
So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. I've got to close because of time. We will pick up here next week. It won't take me but about 10 more minutes, but it may be the most important 10 minutes that I've spent in this pulpit in 11 years. And I'll set you up for it by reading the first part of Acts 11. And next week, I'm going to let you interact and we're going to ask questions and respond to all of this. But look at chapter 11. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. The word of God, to call one of these the word of God is to make it an idol and to miss that the word of God, Jesus said, is every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is the word of God. They had accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised Christians criticized him. Be careful when you go through the land of your brothers. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men? Why did you defy? These are not non-Christian Jews. These are Holy Spirit-filled Jews and the pillars of the church, even the brother of Jesus named James. And Peter came back reporting an experience, but before he reported the experience, they said, Peter, what are you doing going to uncircumcised men and eating with them. Then Peter, Peter didn't break off and start a new religion. Peter believed in community. And Peter submitted his story to community even when the community criticized him. Peter believed in community. So Peter began to explain it to them step by step, step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, and a large sheet coming down from heaven being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, I heard a voice saying to me, In Acts 10, it was called the Spirit. The Spirit said to me, I heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Peter looked at them and said, I cannot be mad at you for criticizing me because I just did the same thing to God. And I've been there. I just had the same argument with God that you're having with me. Somebody make a case that I'm not biblical. We're just walking through the text. I said, by no means, Lord, nothing has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. It happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. And at that very moment, three men were sent to me from Caesarea. They arrived at the house where we were. The spirit 
told me directly to go with them and not to make a distinction between them. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa, bring Simon who's called Peter. He'll give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And brethren, as I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us. He is not making. I build 90% of my cases because as a good Protestant, this is the message I have learned. And as a good Pentecostal, this is the message I've learned. But the reality is most of us use the mediums we are most comfortable with. And Peter does not use scripture here or tradition, not because he's throwing tradition and scripture away, but because experience and the voice of God that has come through it has so unsettled him, he doesn't know what to think. But he tells them the experience and he says, I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as it did on us from the beginning. And I remembered, he didn't say I remembered scripture, he said I remembered the word of the Lord. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, how then shall we live? If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, Who was I to hinder God? And when James and John and the pillars of the church and the circumcised believers heard this, they were silenced and they praised God. This is not a bad community, but it is a community that has to wrestle through. And they praised God saying, then, how then shall we live? Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. It is an unfortunate thing to make one of these above the other because I just read a story to you that in that moment, experience trumped, not Scripture, it trumped their interpretation of Scripture because all of these have to be interpreted. And do you know which one's prima? In the course of your life, these will butt up against one another. I had strong feelings about how angry God was with me. I had strong feelings that I was not the beloved. Religion had deeply embedded a tradition of shame and guilt in me, and I could not read Scripture any other way. And then I held, 16 years ago, last Sunday, I held a little boy in my hand, and through creation, God began to tell me a story. And the foolhardy thing would be to when God to do when God speaks to you profoundly through one of these and it trumps another to throw all of them away. I'll tell you which one is prima. It's the one that in the moment God can get most clearly through to you with. The prima voice is the one that God can speak most clearly and effectively to you in in the moment. And smack dab in the middle of our Bible there was a moment in the life of the church when God was able to speak more clearly through this than he could through this. Through that experience, they went back and they said, there's nothing wrong with this, but they reinterpreted and found out 
that God was saying the same thing through all of the voices. We'll come back next week and we'll talk more about how then shall we live. You say, well, that's about authority. No, that's about who is humanity because the authoritative question in the whole deal, listen, the authoritative question in the whole deal was how do we treat another group of people that we not only have felt a right, but we have felt a responsibility to ostracize from the love of God. The question, always before the church, and I know in the 21st century, everybody all thinks about the LGBT issue, but Jesus has been calling the church to ask ourselves about slaves, other ethnicities, races, Gentiles, Samaritans, and Gentiles, and we will never be delivered from the responsibility to be asking the Holy Spirit, what are you saying through science? What are you saying through my natural intuition? What are you saying in my experience with divorcees? And what does Scripture actually say about women in ministry? And when we conclude, one of these will not win, but the voice of God will win. That's the way the church is called to live. How then shall we live? We'll come back, bring your questions next week, and we'll finish this out. Lord, thank you that you do speak to us. And today, surely you've spoken to us through reason and scripture because your scripture is so reasonable. Thank you, Lord, for the hindsight by which we can see a 2,000-year-old story so clearly. Oh, God, may we see our own story just as clearly as we see the Acts 10 story. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said... Amen. Don't miss next week. Bring your questions and we'll talk about it some more.